I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a special Cheeky Scientist radio show. I'm very excited about today's show because we are interviewing Reba Boswell-Castile, PhD. Uh, Reba is an evidence evaluation manager at Smith & Nephew. Uh, She is an expert in the regulatory affairs field as well as the medical affairs. There's quite a bit of overlap there as uh, we will talk about. And today we're talking about regulatory affairs, what the position holds, why PhDs are valued for this position, and what skills specifically you need to get into this role. Uh, we have a variety of skills we're going to uh, overview. And here's the good news. You have many of these skills already. You just need to translate them into industry language, specifically uh, the language of the regulatory affairs field. Again, a very exciting career track, so let's jump into our conversation with Reba. I'm very excited to bring on our panel. We have quite a few panelists on today, and I'm very excited to talk to all of them. Uh, my uh, Three of my favorite people are here. And we have on Dignesh. Hi, Dignesh. Good to see you on. Hi, Isa. Good to see you as well. Thank you for inviting. Thank you. We have Hoda on as well, and we have Yaping. There we go. Hi, Yaping. Hi, Hoda. How are you? Great. All right. So if you can see four of us, please say hi to the panel in the chat box. You can just say hi, panel, if you would. Uh, That'll let me know that you could see and hear them. And so thanks for joining. So regulatory affairs, and I know there's a lot of convergence with medical affairs, but these departments are, I think, very exciting for PhDs. And to be honest, when I was finishing up my academic career, I didn't know about these departments at all. I think they've really taken off, and uh, they're very, very popular and they like hiring PhDs. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your experience in these types of roles. And I'll start with you, Dignesh. Maybe you can just yeah. introduce yourself and the position and company you're with now. Uh, yes. Uh, um, my name is Dignesh, as I said, and I'm based in, uh, in the UK. Uh, my background is in the PhD in medical engineering, which is medical devices. I also have a um, first degree in the pharmaceutical science, which is also for great health, understanding the physiology and pathophysiology of the uh, therapeutic areas. Um, I work with the Perspectrum Limited, which is a medical device software companies, uh, like artificial intelligence in healthcare, which is a kind of a growing uh, field. And it is ranked 35th in the UK, which is the fastest growing company. And we are hiring actively, so uh, do watch out for any positions. And we are uh, headquartered in Oxford, but also have uh, three offices in the U.S., one in Singapore, and we are expanding in Europe as well. Excellent. Well, congratulations on your success. And please, if you haven't yet, say hello, Dignesh, and thank you for being here. Like all of our panelists, they're just being here to volunteer to show you what's possible uh, for your career as a PhD. Uh, Yeah, Ping, same question to you. Sure. My name is Api Mosher. I'm a regulatory affairs coordinator here in Colorado, um, Institute Cancer Center. Um, my background, I have a PhD in pharmacology, and my basic research is basically all focusing on like second messenger and, and channels. Nothing to do with uh, oncology <laughs> study at all. <laughs> I think that's yeah. important. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to have a certain background to get into regulatory affairs, certainly. But thank you. Please say hi to Yaping. And Hoda, same question to you. What uh, what's your current position if you could introduce yourself and, and the company you're with as well sure so I'm Hoda and uh, I'm a clinical writer as a med- in a medical device company so uh, my PhD is uh, the same as Yaping pharmacology and with no background in clinical trials or medical devices and uh, I also have a doctor of veterinary medicine so some of you might think that why you're not working in like a lab that involves animal studies, uh, which, which is not really, you know, important. I'm just mentioning this because I want to say that your background doesn't matter. If you want, you can get the position. Yeah, and it, it's a great lesson. So please say hi to Hoda if you would. And 
you know, the, your background does not matter yet as PhDs, we kind of fall back on describing our background just because we're so used to it in academia. So if no matter what your background is, you can get into regulatory affairs. Um, all of our panelists will agree that even, you know, even non-STEM companies have regulatory affairs departments because there's so much regulation now and it's only going to increase. Uh, regulation is, is like that, and you'll hear Reba talk about it too. What I wanted to talk about with you three is, you know, looking back, now that you've made the transition, what are the skills that you gained during your PhD that allowed you to get into this role and made you highly coveted by employers for this role? I mean, you know, record-keeping, documentation, these kind of things. I'm just curious looking back, and even if you've sat on the hiring panels of other people to come into regulatory affairs, what do you look for? So in terms of those skills, looking back, Dignesh, what do you think prepared you the most uh, for getting into regulatory affairs? The top skill I would look for is technical writing, uh, cross-functional collaboration, and project management mm. to start with. And definitely in six months' time, I'm looking like networking, not networking within the company, but uh, that helps to work with the uh, regulators. Uh, but then beyond negotiation and conflict resolution, because the moment you start working with the cross-functional, they all have their priorities in the company. And as a regula regulatory professionals, your responsibility is to ensure that the company's products that are in the pipeline and uh, existing product comply with the existing regulations. And not just that, but also keep an eye on the new regulations that are churning out almost every week nowadays. So Every uh, week. Yeah, it's challenging. Yeah, you keep your eyes on, on, on them as well and also maintain the uh, registration of existing medicines and medical devices, in my case, medical devices, uh, but also maintain the, um, so the uh, already registered products. Otherwise, they will withdraw, they, as a business, you have to withdraw uh, the products and it will be a huge business loss. So in a nutshell, mm -hmm. regulatory is... Uh, as I said in the private group, which we have, is science with legal and business framework. Business and legal framework is pretty much uh, stiff, unmovable, but science is. So all we need to do is mold the science into those frameworks and get the uh, approvals for the company and the, allow the products to be marketed in that particular jurisdictions so that businesses can grow and so we Excellent. That's, uh, I love that uh, description, that, that, that science is the malleable uh, component here. <laughs> uh, so great, Dignesh, thank you. Please thank Dignesh for his time. Uh, great great uh, way to discuss it and really way to understand why you as PhDs, wh whatever your background is, ha have this particular uh, advantage over other job candidates here. Of course, we're, we're used to dealing within the regulatory components, uh, you know, put, submitting a grant. I mean, how many different rules do you have to follow just to do that, right? Um, and then you're fitting your science in a sense to create a narrative, right, and to uh, fulfill the requirements of, of a grant or a paper. And whether that science is, you know, social sciences or engineering or, or, or uh, whether it's more information-based and humanities. Uh, you can definitely do this. So, uh, yeah, Ping, same question to you. Looking back, like, what are the skills that really helped you? And, and if you could, you know, think from the, the standpoint of the attendees, you might be thinking, I can't possibly do this role. I don't have these skills. What would you say? I would say definitely look at these values that you can add to the to the company. And also, there, uh, this webinar is going to co cover a lot of transferable skills you should highlight. And I would say, uh, besides what Dignity just mentioned, that's a tongue right there. And I would say, uh, your critical thinking is definitely very important because you can sometimes, you might be handling all kinds of different trials. And even say for pharma studies, even for like, like for me, I'm doing oncology studies, I, like I have like 15 different trials and every trial design is completely different. So you might have something coming in and then even with the same event, but you might have to deal with it very differently based on what the protocol is dictated and based on what the contract says. So you're definitely having that, that kind of uh, critical thinking to make the right decision for a particular trial based on even the same event. And the other thing is uh, communication is definitely key because um, in different, I guess, depend, depending on the position, depending on the company, but oftentimes you're going to have to uh, talk to people with different uh, 
I shouldn't say different interests, but they are definitely having different roles. So, so at the, our scientific background is definitely a good selling point, particularly when you are dealing with, say, R&D, or when you are dealing with, um, say, uh, an investigator with an MD degree. You definitely have, yeah. to, have to speak the right language to your audience to make them understand why a particular uh, decision or a particular regulatory mandate is important mm -hmm. to keep everything uh, like to keep com everything compliance and also uh, particularly also when you're dealing with regulatory authorities like FDA as well. So yeah, well these said. two are definitely something that PhDs are way much better than <clears throat> than a lot of like MDs or oh, sorry MS or or or. Right. Um, measures that I've seen. Yeah. yeah, I mean, being able to uh, process that higher level information and, and, and communicate it uh, and communicate the rationale specifically, like Yapping said, to a, uh, another PhD or to an MD is why uh, employers want you in these roles. Uh, so thank you, Yapping. Please thank Yapping in the chat box, if you would, for her insights. And uh, Oda, same question to you. Uh, why are employers... Uh, what do they see in PhDs that makes them su such great candidates for regulatory affairs? And what would you say to our attendees who might be thinking, oh, I don't know if I have the, the ability to do this? So first of all, uh, I want to say that when I was uh, doing my PhD, I was looking into different positions. I was not really considering any regulatory position because I thought they are boring, because I thought whatever they are doing, they are just reading guidelines all the day. They are trying to figure out what, what are the guidelines. So, which is not really true. It really depends on the position. If you consider like a product before it is released to the market, whether it's a pharmaceutical product or a medical device, it needs to go through several stages of regulations. And even after it is released to the market, uh, which is a called post-market you know, follow-ups, uh, it needs to go through regulations. So as you can see, there are several opportunities out there and if it's a pharmaceutical uh, company, it might be a little bit different. If it's a medical device, it might be a little bit different. But all I want to say, it really depends on the position. I have both experience in clinical trials, oncology clinical trials, um, the same as Yapping was uh, you know, mentioning, and I also have experience in medical devices. Uh, so for clinical trials, I can say that communication is um, really essential. Uh, you need to communicate with the investigators, which are the physicians. Uh, and, you know, in order to use the language that they are speaking is so important. On the other hand, you need to sometimes communicate with patients uh, and, you know, explaining in simple words what does the clinical trial says is really important in those areas also. And in regards to mm -hmm. medical devices that right now I'm working, the writing skill is so important. We are managing several projects at the same time. Uh, solving problems and even analyzing data is, you know, are the skills that I think are really important. Really, really well said. And, and I appreciate you talking about um, I guess the trends, right, in terms of regulatory affairs, you're alluding to that this is going only going to increase. All of you have touched on this. So uh, I think that's important for all of our attendees to know when we all might be thinking, what are the career paths that are going to be here tomorrow? Like, uh, what, what, are the, where, what are the career paths that provide the most certainty that, that, can, uh, that can have a protective effect over what I want to do? And I think regulatory affairs is definitely one of them. I know it is. I've seen the expansion. I've seen how many PhDs have been hired into it. So thank you for the good work that all of you are doing uh, in this space. And thank you for coming on. Great to see you. Thank Please you. thank Oda in the chat box thank if you, you would. And thank all of our panelists if you haven't yet. Uh, on that note, I think it's very important for all of you to understand, to zoom out and see kind of uh, the intelligent strategy of getting into a regulatory affairs position. Now, before, right, like I, I was in graduate school in the 2008 financial crisis, which affected about half of the world. Uh, there was a, a market crash, job losses. It was very hard to get a job. And a lot of people during an economic downturn like that, they used to go into academia because that was like the safe space. Like that would be the time to go get your extra degree or whatever. But now academia is the most riskiest space to get into. A lot of uh, people aren't even returning to school in the fall. So like tuition, the funding for the universities is plummeting. There's a, an earthquake happening in academia right now. It's the least secure place to be. What is the most secure place right now? Regulations. Uh, we've seen uh, 
an avalanche of regulations coming out due to the pandemic. Uh, a lot of uh, things that needed to be regulated have been exposed because of the pandemic. Uh, and regulation is all, only going to increase. We're seeing a surge of hiring in this space right now. And it's, again, it's a great, we're going to hear from Reba here in a second. It's a great position to get into because you get to leverage your PhD. It relies on a lot of skill sets you have. You're desired in this role. You might be invisible to these employers, but you're desired uh, by them. They, they're looking for you. They just can't find you. And it's a secure job track to get into, especially when the economy is lower. Uh, it's one of those things where regulations always increase, but they especially increase when there's an economic uh, downturn. So with that, we're going to bring on Reba, the senior program leader for the Regu Regulatory Affairs Council. I'm going to have her start a video and then we're going to jump into the slides here. So if you haven't let yet, if you just joined us, remember that Alejandra is posting the link to learn about the Regulatory Affairs Council in the chat box. And I think we have Reba on by audio and video. Hi, Reba. Hello. <laughs> Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Please say hi to Reba if you were able to see and hear her. Uh, Reba, what did you think of our panel and everything that they said? Would anything jump out at you as being uh, very insightful? I, I think they were spot on, and you definitely don't have to have experience in regulatory affairs to get hired in the industry. Um, similar to what the panel is, my background is in protein biochemistry. And I currently work for a medical device company, which has absolutely nothing to do with protein biochemistry. Perfect. And, and so to kind of continue on the topic uh, that we closed on with the panel, this idea that regulatory affairs is growing. Right? I think some of the attendees don't have a reference point. They don't know what industries are growing. They don't realize how uh, regulation expands no matter what, but especially after a, a traumatic event like the pandemic. Can you just talk about this briefly? Yes, so regulations are constantly growing. Um, as Isaiah said, the pandemics identified some areas that weren't as tightly regulated as what they should be, and they're making changes to help bring this under control. Um, then yeah. you get situations like medical devices where you're currently undergoing a major regulatory shift where, again, they identified situations which needed tighter control and new regulations were the result. Yeah, and you can see that this is worldwide. And so I know a lot of you are attending from other countries. This is a sector you can get into in any country. It is, uh, I mean, there's a reason that we work so hard to get the Regulatory Affairs Council out because it, there is a need for you in this set. I mean, your, your ability, everything that you're doing right now, no matter your background, your ability to research, evaluate credible information, uh, dig into a piece and, and show that technical literacy, not just in comprehension, but in, in pulling out key facts and then being able to you know, synthesize that and explain it to a, a clinician, a, a business executive, an MD. That's something all of you can do. And that's why you're valuable in industry. We see this trend across any career that pays well and is, uh, that is actively seeking PhDs is that you, got, you are able to you know, collect data and information, synthesize it, and then communicate it to different types of people. So in terms of it growing, right, we have some stats here. The job listings have increased 42% in recent years. Is there any other trends, like may, maybe more of a, a segmented trend or a micro trend within the regulatory affairs that you're seeing? So overall, it's growing, of course, uh, but do you see any shifts as far as even job titles or types of companies? Like, I guess to start, I've seen a lot of non-tech, non-STEM companies also building regulatory affairs departments. I used hotels as an example because they have to meet certain requirements for sanitation now. But any other trends that you've seen that might be noteworthy? So one of the biggest trends that I've seen is um, directly related to the field that I work in, and that's in medical devices. Um, probably five to six years ago, there was no need to write clinical evaluation reports. Now every device getting marketed in Europe is required to have them, regardless of classification. So you're seeing a huge uptick in the need for clinical evaluation technical writers. And it's, it's growing. It's going to continue to grow because it's new regulations. And there's a shortage of them. Since this position didn't exist five, six years ago, they're having to source these type of positions from somewhere. Perfect. And I think those insights are really helpful when 
you're a PhD looking for jobs. Uh, knowing on the ground what's happening and what's changing gives you a dramatic ad advantage. And that's why the Regulatory Affairs Council has the, the private group with people currently working in uh, RA. Okay, so who hires regulatory affairs specialists? I'm new, I'm here as an attendee. I was thinking about getting into a regulatory affairs uh, career after hearing the panelists and you. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. What, what are these five sectors and, and how do I start looking into each? So private companies are going to be um, just private companies in general, companies that are bringing products to market for profit. Your regulatory agencies a lot of time are your government agencies who are approving those products. Um, universities, clinical trial sites, they may be helping private companies get their products to market or in the case of universities, taking IP that's developed from their PIs in-house and trying to get those to market as well. Or they may be looking at something and doing a further investigation, just trying to understand it from a basic science perspective. Mm. Your contract research organizations, they may be contracted out to support private companies that are smaller or to support universities that have an added need for some type of regulatory specialist that they don't have on site. And then your IRBs are, are over your clinical trials and make sure that those are safe from a patient perspective and following protocols and regulations. Perfect. And we're going to talk more about, you know, the, the sectors here that are considered more public, those that are considered more private, and what they, what they do a bit differently. Uh, you will see a lot of acronyms within the regulatory affairs field, and that's a big part of the program actually is teaching you these acronyms uh, because learning the language of regulatory affairs is a big part of getting hired into it. So just as an example, if you go to an interview and they start talk, talking to you about IRBs, it might seem like a small point if you don't know what that is and you have to ask because you were not prepared, uh, but another job candidate knew what it meant, immediately the other job candidate has an advantage. Now, if you look at the, so we've talked about the value of PhDs in the role of a regulatory affairs specialist or similar. What are the value of regulatory affairs professionals? Like, how do they help a company? Like, if I'm a company, why would I want to have a regulatory affairs professional on my team? So, regulatory affairs are involved with a product from ideation stages all the way through post-launch. You can't market a product in any country without having some type of compliance to a set of regulations. And your regulatory affairs professionals are there to make sure that you're in compliance and you're capable of marketing your product. Yeah, so, so take that in. Ideation, that's the stage of, you know, the, the IP, figuring out what product to actually make, what product uh, or service a company is going to put their resources into. The very, very initial stages in terms of innovation. And then even as you cross over to the commercialization side of the spectrum, or that's the D in R&D, Regulations heavily involved. It's the entire spectrum, right? So, so once it goes to market, another key industry phrase. How do you support that product after market when it starts hitting uh, customers, uh, patients? There's things that you. There's a lot of things you have to do there, and that's why this role uh, is so important. So, in terms of the subfields of regulatory affairs, there are three that we're looking at here. Reba, can you walk us through them? So, your operations are going to be your specialists that are involved more in your day-to-day -day operations. They may be working outside of your submission tracks, so they may be overseeing compliance from a quality or manufacturing perspective. Your strategy individuals are those that are tactically focused on implementing and developing new strategies. These are generally um, in your submissions type of roles, understanding how you're going to bring a new product to market, what's the, the fastest and most effective route. And then your interface individuals are communication focused, and they may be communicating between your regulatory bodies and the company itself or looking um, at external communications with your healthcare providers or your patients. Yeah, so, and so these are kind of like the three subdivisions that you'll be trained on in the Regulatory Affairs Council or subfields, so you can choose the one that's right for you. You can see how these, each of these roles will be slightly different. Uh, you know, you think, would you rather be doing uh, more strategic work on the strategy side of regulatory affairs, more operational, right, looking at uh, pro productivity, performance, some of these key metrics or the interface communication. So just knowing what you know about yourself and seeing this slide, I'm curious, type in which of these three 
you'd be the most interested in. If you started looking at regulatory affairs job titles tomorrow in the program to get hired, which one of these jump out to you? Let me know in the chat box. A good chance to interact here. Uh, operations, interface, strategy, and I'm just curious too. So interface strategy, so far pretty even, a lot of interfaces. Anybody else? Operations, a lot of operations, some strategy, a lot of operate. I mean, as, as PhDs, we love uh, protocols, methodologies, or at least we're comfortable with them. Uh, that's a big piece of operations, and we do see a lot of uh, PhDs getting there, but, but also interfacing, right? Your ability to speak, uh, as I say, nerd and normal person. Like you can talk to a business executive with no technical training, but you can also talk to a highly technical clinician or PhD. Okay, day-to-day -day tasks. So I just got hired into my new regulatory affairs position. Reba, what am I going to be doing? Let's say I've, I've onboarded, I've been trained. What am I doing day-to-day? -day? What does your average week look like, let's say? Uh, the one thing you're doing on a daily basis is coordination and communication. You're usually working on multiple projects that involve multiple cross-functional teams. And you have to keep those projects in, in line with your deadlines. Um, so you're going through a lot of coordination tasks to make sure they're, they're meeting their approaching deadlines. And communication is absolutely vital to these. Regulatory is like, I often like to say, is kind of the center hub of a wheel. Everything feeds into a regulatory and regulatory feeds out to all of your departments. Um, the second thing is going to be documentation. There's a lot of technical documentation that goes into uh, regulatory type positions and making sure that documentation is accurate and correct is important. And then of course, staying up with your regulations, you, you have to know not only what the regulations say, but what the current interpretation of those regulations are because the interpretation of the regulation can change just as often as what the regulation does. And there's always issues that arise. So you may be working in one particular area. You have a submission that was submitted 6, 12, 18 months ago. And all of a sudden, there's a question that comes across from that submission, or maybe it's an old audit. And you have to drop everything that you're doing and address that question or um, nonconformity that's coming up. Yeah, I, I love this, uh, just this phrase, pop-up pop issue management. And I just, I, I was saying in the chat box, I love this role for PhDs because you're highly respected given your background, um, your ability to, comp uh, comprehension is, I, I would say, one of the most undervalued skill sets in the general population ever. The ability to read, right, Reba's laughing because she knows what I'm talking about. In regulatory affairs, you are highly respected for your ability to do this. Here's a document with, the most, you know, absurd legalese logic, but still winding word ever. I mean, we like you know, how many peer-reviewed journal articles did you read before you were just started being able to skim through them, right? Same thing here. And most people can't understand; they can't pick apart a document the way that you can. It's because of your comprehension, information processing. So it just makes you very, very valuable. And it's something you're already trained in. It's not like, oh, I got to go work on my comprehension. No, no, you are in the top. Uh, easily 1% of the people who, who can do this. Beyond that, you know, Reba, uh, just that, uh, a quick note, you know, what's, you, you talk a lot about the work-life balance, the kind of hours uh, of the role as well. I think this is one of those unique uh, roles that's uh, challenging. Uh, you know, salaries pay is, is great, great team, you're, you're highly respected, but it's, uh, it has great work-life balance. Anything to, to mention there? I remember you saying this is one of the reasons you actually got into the career. Yeah, um, work-life balance is great, and so is job security. Kind of as we've alluded to earlier, the regulation and the demand for regulations is always increasing. So there's always going to be a need to have a regulatory affairs specialist on the team. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so let's talk about this. We haven't shown this slide ever before, and, and we had a lot of questions come up uh, last week when this program uh, launched, the Regulatory Affairs Council, and uh, the questions were basically, you know, should I target a private company or a public company? What are the differences in these uh, regulatory affairs sector? So we're, we're showing just a, you know, simple compare and contrast in unique duties and advantages. Can you walk us through this, Reba, and then maybe add any, any others that you would know just from your real-world experience or talking to others in the different sector that you're in? So in a private company, you represent the company that you work for. And your main point is to make sure you either 
keep products on the market or gain access to new markets. And then in the public sector, your, your, your main objective is to make sure that the products that are available in your market or coming into your market are safe and effective. So a little bit different from a perspective um, viewpoint. And the advantages of being in the private sector is you've got a faster hiring process. You don't have to go through as much red tape um, to be hired into these locations or these positions. Your locations aren't restricted to one particular area. So say like Washington, DC, there's private companies all across um, various geographies. Yeah. And when you look at the public sector, you've got a position that's extremely stable. They're the ones making the regulations, they're interpreting the regulations, and they're making sure that the private sector is in compliance with those regulations. Um, people tend to get in these positions and stay because they're really stable. They've got great benefits and high compensation as well. Yeah, great point. And some of you are asking in the, the chat box, you know, how, how does this work? Do you have to get certified by a government body to work in regulatory affairs? No, you don't. Your, your PhD really is your certification. Now, the, the Regulatory Affairs Council will certify you in regulatory affairs in terms of your training to work in industry and give you a certificate backed by a board of regulatory affairs specialists. Now, of course, that matters. These are all PhD level uh, specialists. Uh, and that's we do that so that you can get trained so you have a certificate and, and really these certificates and training programs are only as good as the people behind them. Uh, we do that for those of you who don't have experience. A lot of the job postings will say you need two to five years of experience, et cetera. The certificate and this training is what can make up for that in the program. Okay, let's get to the meat of today's presentation, the skills, all right? So the transferable skills that you have already that make you uh, very valuable to get into this role. Now, here's the problem and most of you think that you lack skills or lack experience. That's why you can't get hired into regulatory affairs or otherwise. That's not the reason. You're, you're invisible. Uh, you, you're not on employer's radar. You're just uploading resumes and you haven't heard anything back. And I'm, I'm guessing if I ask that, in fact, how many of you have uploaded a resume online for a regulatory affairs job or otherwise and you haven't heard anything back or you're just getting those automated responses? Type me in the chat box. So understanding the skills is important, but you have to communicate those skills, right? You got to communicate those skills on your resumes and your LinkedIn profile correctly. And this is a specific process uh, that you'll learn in the Regulatory Affairs Council for doing this, specific for regulatory affairs jobs, because of course the skills and how you adapt your resume and the informational interviews and, and the interview process itself is very different and specific for each individual career track, especially regulatory affairs. Um, so here we're looking at strategic thinking, technical knowledge and backgrounds. Our panelists talked a lot about this and why this is an advantage. Comprehension we talked about too. Um, in terms of the skills here, this is just kind of a neat graphic showing some of these uh, skills that sound simplistic. That's what we've heard from other PhDs, but they're actually really important. They, they sound simplistic so we don't put them on our resume. We don't put critical thinking or organizational skills, time management. Instead, we put like some uh, niche technical skill that's not relevant. And I know, Reba, you were saying in your story, this is what you thought was important too, but you know, of course it ended up not being that way. So when, when you've had PhDs uh, or you've uh, interviewed PhDs or helped PhDs get hired into regulatory affairs, what do you tell them on this topic in terms of not obsessing over their technical skills and focusing more on these skills? Uh, one of the main things with regulatory affairs um, if, if you're applying to a position in a medical device company, for example, that's working on pacemakers, and you're solely focused on protein purification, as a hiring manager, you're not giving me any background to evaluate how well you would fit into my team and what skill sets you're bringing, for, bringing to it. So it's important to, to focus on the skill sets that are listed in the job description and the transferable skills that are going to make you successful in that position. So having like key attention to detail is necessary when you're looking at technical documentation because one small typo or where you've accidentally put in the wrong information can kill a submission. And one thing that I particularly look at when I'm interviewing individuals is their adaptability to change. Regulatory is a fast-paced environment. It's constantly changing. And if you're the, the mindset that 
you're working on something and then five seconds later it changes and you have a mini panic attack and it's like, oh my goodness, I can't do this. It's, it's changing too fast. That's really not a good fit for a regulatory affairs position mm. because we have to be very adaptable and willing to work through change at a quick pace. Yeah, and I think that's a, a crucial point. Um, and it speaks to this next slide, critical thinking, data analysis, but not the kind of critical thinking and data analysis that a lot of us associate with, you know, the lone PhD that has, you know, six months to critically analyze something and go through the data. There's a lot of things happening in real time, right? Especially in, in businesses. A new regulation comes out, that company has to start adapting today. So you have to be able to critically think on your feet, so to speak, and analyze data on your feet to start adapting to this. Uh, so on that note, what does that look like? Do you have like a real world example you could give? Uh, you know, you could mask or de-identify whatever, but a certain regulation that came out and then uh, a certain company or sector had to pivot. So looking at medical device regulations, one thing that we're required to have in our submissions and our yearly kind of maintenance documents is to demonstrate that we have sufficient clinical data to support performance and efficacy and safety. It just says sufficient data. It doesn't give you any type of guidelines, what's considered sufficient data. There's no magic numbers. So you have to kind of read into that gray area, understand what that level of ambiguity means, and determine if you have a, a sound, solid, scientific justification for claiming that you have sufficient data. Mm. Yeah, well, well said. And, and we talked about attention to detail. How are you going to prove this on an interview? Again, do you know the acronyms? Did you pay attention uh, to what was required for the regulatory affairs role before getting hired into it, or are you just winging it? Do you have any sort of training uh, like the Regulatory Affairs Council provides, or again, are you just trying to wing it? We have a lot of PhDs who do that, and it's a mistake. Communication. So talk a little bit more about communicating and I would say that that interface skill, Reba, of being able to talk to a business executive and give them rationale versus talking to like a clinician or another PhD and giving them rationale and how you bring these groups together to make sure that everybody is adhering or adapting to a regulation. Yeah, I can't stress how important this skill is in any type of regulatory position. You, you talk to everybody. So um, just to give you an example, a regulatory affairs person, maybe interacting with marketing communications, looking at a patient brochure, and you need to make sure that that patient brochure is in compliance with the regulations. You interact with your research and development teams to make sure they are on an appropriate pathway to gain market access. You interact with your clinical and medical affairs teams to make sure that you're following all the appropriate guidelines for enrolling patients in clinical trials and maintaining your protocols that you've established and following up on your appropriate post-market um, required actions. Yeah, great points. And uh, this is something you'll get a lot of training in. Remember, there's those three subfields of regulatory affairs that you will be tested on and you need to also figure out which field is right for you. Um, so just final thoughts on that, Reba, and then we're gonna go back to the slides. And, and talk specifically about why PhDs fail to get hired into regulatory affairs, like the mistakes they make, so stay tuned for that. But just in terms of your knowledge and how it's increased after you've been hired, Reba, like looking back, what did you not know on the business side of things? Was there an extensive gap or was there a small gap? And how, how is your knowledge base and your ability to, or I guess your business acumen in general changed? Um, honestly, I knew very little about business when I got started in this. And just sitting in through meetings, um, going through the company, uh, you really learn a lot just kind of by attrition. So you can sit in, absorb it, listen, listen and learn. But as far as really understanding how business works in general, um, it's not necessarily a diehard requirement. Yeah. And, and it's not a requirement. It's nothing we learn about in academia. Um, but it is something that you absolutely need in, in the regulatory affairs or really any industry career track. So this is that coupon code. We've got about 10 minutes left. Let's talk about what keeps PhDs out of regulatory affairs. You know, I know there have been PhDs that you've hired, Reba, into regulatory affairs. But there's also PhDs that were not great candidates. So what made them not a good candidate? What made you say no to them? 
Uh, one of my biggest pet peeves is applying to the company and not knowing anything about it. I've had numerous occasions where I've received resumes and they're applying to a position in a pharmaceutical industry and I work in medical devices. Mm. They've, they clearly have done no homework. They don't know what they're talking about. They're citing knowledge on regulations that have absolutely nothing to do with the job that they're targeting. And probably the second thing is if, if you make it past the resume skills, really being able to sell your soft skills in an interview. If you come across as very, not really cold, but just kind of uninterested or really wanting to know kind of what the next step in your career is without focusing on the job that you're actually applying for, it can really turn people off. Yeah, well said. And, and I think for us as PhDs, we think, well, I just have to know the subjective knowledge and that's it. You don't. You know, just being on this webinar is not enough. That's why we have a private group with all of our advanced programs, uh, and especially with the Regulatory Affairs Council, is because you have to uh, learn behaviorally. You can't just say, okay, I understand that behavioral practice is important, or I understand that I need to be able to say and talk and show business acumen, or I understand these business concepts, because we all sink to the level of our training. And if you haven't interacted with people currently working in regulatory affairs in this specific case, uh, you are going to struggle. And certainly, you're not going to get hired above those who have. Uh, so the, the main regulatory agencies, we have five listed here. I think it can help. Uh, these, you'll be expected to know these agencies. Uh, so what are they, Reba? Um, you've got your main one, which is the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for anybody that's based in the U.S. Your EU is going to be the European Medicines Agency. And Health Canada is important. And then for those working in pharmaceuticals, um, the ICH is extremely important as well. Mm. And, and of course, these are covered in detail in the program. Now, we did talk about the nomenclature, the uh, acronyms. So quick, Reba, what is NDA? <laughs> it depends on what, what sector you're working in. So for medical devices, that's going to be a non-disclosure agreement. For pharmaceuticals, that may be a new drug application. DMF. Um, drug master file. IND. Um, in investigational new drug. You're hitting all there the pharmaceuticals. <laughs> there we go. And you still know them. That's great. Uh, okay. So, and this is what you'll learn and, and what you'll need to learn uh, for regulatory affairs. Uh, so what about a strategy? Like looking back, if you had to talk to your former self when you were trying to get hired, Reba, uh, what would you, what would you have suggested to yourself? What mistake did you make that you would try to correct? I focused way too much on the technical skills I gained as a PhD and not enough on my soft skills. And there were a few skills like technical writing and communication that I really didn't focus on at all. Mm. And, and in terms of the strategy, there are some key principles, right? Of, you need a resume uh, to get hired into uh, industry. You need to have a LinkedIn profile. You need to you know, set up informational interviews, find out what jobs are available, learn to speak the lingo. But for regulatory affairs, I would say there are some specifics. I think the, the nomenclature is crucial. I think your ability to show technical literacy and comprehension is crucial. Uh, so when we look at the, the regulatory affairs career path, what are some of the differences? And you know, you've, you've been in, uh, you've seen other PhDs get hired into other jobs, Reba, you have a lot of exposure to that. So, you know, based on that knowledge, what, are, what differentiates the regulatory affairs career path, even if there are slight differentiations, they, they still can matter a lot. Um, it really starts with the resume. I'm just making sure you're covering the technical skills and the soft skills that's needed. And the biggest thing is anytime you're having a face-to-face -face or computer or phone conversation, just really make sure your, your personality comes out. A lot of these positions hire based off of personality and less on technical skills because communication is such an important factor in these positions. Yeah, and you know, th there, there might be certain uh, tests or, or different uh, other checkpoints for regulatory affairs, and it depends on which specific pos position you're applying to. So let's look at the hiring process for private versus public <laughs> because they're, they're quite a bit different. And so we're, we're looking here that the public sector obviously can be much more complex. Just in your experience and talking to people in the field, private versus public, but what are some of the differences that you've seen? Um, the private 
sector is pretty much a direct hiring approach. The company advertises a position and the company hires you. You can submit just about any type of resume that you want and it'll get reviewed. Whereas the public sector, um, there's a lot of hoops they have to go through. Um, you may have to not be able to screen applicants until you've got 20, 30, 40 applications. Um, the hiring process may be different between residents versus non-residents. And it's really going to be dependent on country. So some countries may only hire citizens where others may be more open to hiring outside individuals. And the public sectors almost always have a very specific format that the resumes have to follow. So whereas a private company resume may be one to two pages, the public sector, you really have to um, show that you have the necessary qualifications. And that resume may end up being four or five, six pages long. Yeah, so you can see how that is quite a bit different, right, um, in, in the public sector. How many of you are considering or have looked at regulatory affairs jobs or jobs that could be classified as regulatory affairs in the public sector? It is a complex process that most of you do not understand, and we do training on this in the program. Uh, so what about specifics of uh, – let's talk a, a little bit more about specifics of, of hiring and agencies, uh, Reba. Can you walk us through this slide? So kind of like I was alluding to, in the government agencies, um, they've got their own rules for applications. They may have to meet sheer numbers or they may have a limit for diversity inclusion type hiring practices. And foreign applicants may not be allowed to apply or they may have a completely different um, approach to hiring. Um, these are usually, can be for online permanent positions or um, you may have a lot of remote contractors as well. And the, the timeline to getting hired, depending on what those um, requirements are, um, could be a lot longer. So it may take anywhere from six to eight months or longer, just depending on what the applicant pool looks like. Yeah, and you can imagine how uh, in the dark you could be through, through that process that that's complex. It's not like hiring for a professor in academia. Uh, it is government, but depending on the government, depending on the regulatory agency, uh, it can vary quite a bit. So a, a huge advantage of being a Regulatory Affairs Council member uh, is understanding that complexity uh, and and being able to uh, save your resources and your time, right? Because you might be applying on the wrong pathway, which could put you back several months. Uh, so as far as resumes go, quite a bit different than we, we teach on a lot of the uh, other industry positions. So it can be longer, of course, uh, there could be uh, certain submission requirements. Anything else noteworthy, Reba? They're just a lot more detailed. And um, you really have to demonstrate that you have the qualifications that they're after in order to get considered for these positions. Perfect. And we're almost at the top of the hour here. So when it comes to networking, obviously, this is one of the reasons we created the Regulatory Affairs Council is so that you could get access to people working in, in these agencies. We have people in the FDA and the other regulatory agencies we showed before who can help guide you through this process, but why, why is networking specifically with people in the public sector important if you want to work in the public sector? They can give you a lot of the insights that you need as far as what does a resume need to look like? What are the exact qualifications that they're looking for? And how do I need to format my resume to make it appealing to the hiring manager? Yeah, and so really just we're trying to show here that networking for a public sector job is different in regulatory affairs than the private sector. Of course, the principles are the same, right? You, you talk to people, uh, but the things that you need to learn about and need to know are specific, not just for uh, agencies in general, but for each specific government agency. Thank you again, Reba, for being on the radio show and for providing your insights. This takes us to the end of this show. Uh, if you want to learn more about getting hired into the regulatory affairs field, we have a new advanced program at Cheeky Scientist called the Regulatory Affairs Council. You can learn about this program and all of our programs at CheekyScientist.com. If you are new to your job search, you don't know which position is right for you, you can go to PhDsGetHired.com. That's plural, PhDs. GetHired.com to learn more about our flagship program, the Cheeky Scientist Association that has helped thousands of PhDs around the world get hired. It'll train you on the basics of your job search and help you find the right position for you. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.
I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's Cheeky Radio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees. No recurring annual fees. Nobody else offers this. PhDsgethired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD. And remember that knowledge is power and your network is your net worth.